like Gilbert and you're like Sullivan. Yeah. Uh, were they gay? I don't know. I don't know anything about those guys. Just relax. Just take a deep breath, Michael. Just take a deep breath, Michael. Mm. <laughs> and then just groan it out with an existential moan. You know, uh, my heartbreaking relationship that I ended recently? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know that one? Yeah. Have I told you about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard about it once or twice. Well, they called me Mike. Mm-hmm. And I'm a very accommodating dude. I know. I was very like, you can call me Mike, but now I feel like... I have the strength of character to admit that I am a Michael. I know. As you know, I've always known you're a Michael and never called you Mike. I'm frankly shocked when people call you Mike. I think it doesn't help that Mike is my dad's name and he went by Mike. And I was like, you're not like my dad in any way. Oh my God, that was the nicest thing you've ever said to me. <laughs> I know, probably. <laughs> to not be like my dad is like the highest praise, the highest honor we give as a country. Well, speaking of dads, we have a special episode. It's true. Listeners, I am so excited. This is an experimental episode of hopefully there will be many more. Oh, yeah. Michael is bringing a little bit more of his artistic joie de vivre Mm. to the show. Yes. But wait wait a minute. But before we pivot to that, I want to ask Hava, how is it going? (laughs) Oh, what a twist. I know. It's a a twist. twist. Baruch Hashem. (laughs) I will not be deviating from that pattern. I am pretty well. I went on a walk with a friend today and we got coffee and then we went and sat on the benches in the dog park and watched the dogs play. That's nice. It was one of the first days in a while that I could really sit outside without being too hot. There was a nice breeze blowing and I ate a cheddar jalapeno scone. Ooh. Yeah, so that was really, really nice. And I'm looking at my plants right now, which are doing really well. I found a really cool set of ASL lesson videos that I've been practicing on. I'm just really jazzed to be working on ASL again. Oh, ASL. I have such strange romantic connotations. Oh, because of AIM and like instant messenger context? No, 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 no. Because I once had a, a housemate who I had a big crush on who was an ASL teacher. I see. And we became really close yeah. and they were teaching me ASL. Wow. Towards the end of our tenures in this apartment, yeah, I was like, I'm kind of into you. And you know what they said? What? Oh, that's cute. Or something to that effect. Oh, brutal. My heart was like ripped out of my chest and like eaten by a... A vulture. Yeah, vulture, Mm -hmm. exactly. A vulturette. Also, I want to say to our listeners that I'm trying to convince Michael that we should make a spinoff D&D podcast where we play a Jewish game of D&D. So if you want that to happen, then you should tweet at him at Miss underscore figured. Oh, my God. To peer pressure him into it. I mean, I love getting tweeted at. I hardly ever get tweeted at. I know. I'm more the Twitter one. Yeah, I don't have the art. I don't have the magic thumb. The blue thumb. But enough about me, Michael. I mean, that's a lie. How are you? Oh, well, I, I'm i feeling a lot less anxious than I was yesterday and the day before yesterday. Mm-hmm. I was playing this game with someone and I totally thought the ball was in their court. You were playing like a romantic social game. You weren't literally playing a video game with someone. No, no, no. It was a romantic social game and I thought the ball was in their court. And then I realized with the help of Hava that there is no ball. Right. And there is no court. And that you can just ask for what you need and want. And I can just be like, hey, baby. Yeah. (laughs) Or whatever. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, like that. You know, I've been thinking about the whole pronoun and identity thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Contemplating your pronouns. Contemplating it. Here's, here's Here's the truth, listeners. 
I feel like a they. Mm-hmm. I want to be a they, but mm-hmm. I also don't want to be a they because I don't really want to impose language on other people. Right. And when I say right, I don't mean that's the correct way to feel because I'm not on board with that, but I mean it as a listening noise. It's like I want to take up space, but I don't want to take up space. <laughs> right, for sure. It's like you want to take up space, but you've been socialized to be terrified of taking up space. Yeah. Yeah. I also feel like I don't deserve it. Oh, you do deserve it. Oh, I deserve it. Yeah, absolutely. This pronoun saga will be ongoing listeners. But speaking of ways in which Michael has been traumatically inculcated to not take up space, today we have an incredible episode. It's an experiment with a new type of episode that I'm hoping we'll do a lot of. I'm hoping that you enjoy it. We are going to be listening along with you, listener, to an interview that Michael did with his dad and will be interspersing our commentary. That is correct. Hava, you have not heard this yet. No, I've. it's fresh, first listen, unboxing episode. I wanted to talk to my dad about what it was like to be a Jew in the Soviet Union. A, a lot of it is stuff I kind of already knew, but I thought it would be interesting for you guys to hear it. And a lot of it I had no idea about. It was also really interesting to talk to him because he's not a very uh, direct communicator in general. (laughs) I would say he is the man of the house. Right. In every sense. Listeners, I hope this gives you a little bit of a peek into my psychosexual um, trauma. Trauma. And also a peek into the varied world of Jewish experience. Let's start listening. Let it rip. Can you describe where we are? An upstairs bedroom, which is right now is a cross between spare bedroom, office sometimes during COVID, mm-hmm. and uh, storage of my bunch of my records. And some of the records are Russian records. Uh, in this room, it's actually rock and roll and my special Beatles collection. Yeah, some Russian too. Some. Yep. There's Russian Beatles albums, right? Yep, that too. And my music archive, like papers, clippings from the 80s, so from before United States. We're here to interview you about your life, what it's like to be a Jew in Russia, and what it was like to deal with authority. You mean in the former Soviet Union? Because it's very different now, I'm, I'm sure. And I have I have no idea how it is right now. What years would that be? So I graduated from high school in 75 and then five years of college. That's eight. So all of my growing up from about 1970 through 89 when we left. From 1970 to 89. That's when you were a, a conscious living dad. Yeah, mo- most of those years. When did you know that you were a Jew? When did you realize that was meaningful? Uh, probably late elementary school i think in the very beginning of the school year when they were taking attendance they were checking the nationality too which kind of puts you into awkward position if you're jewish because you need to admit it in front of the class why wasn't your nationality from the soviet union so everybody in the soviet union has the internal passport all of the adults and that always has nationality the kids before they turn 16 they don't have passport but they have their birth certificate which lists their parents and their nationalities if they're different for the parents let's say russian and ukrainian then the kid can pick the nationality later on 
the one he wants. If both of your parents happen to be Jewish, then of course you're Jewish too. And that was written in that internal ID. Jewish was nationality. Right. Being Jewish, it was like ethnicity almost. Okay, so that's really interesting to me. What was interesting about it? Well, one is just a really interesting window into the life of a Jew in the former Soviet Union. I really loved when he was like, not Russia, former Soviet Union. I know, that is so <laughs> That is so my dad. You will always find this littlest thing you did wrong <laughs> and just like stab it, just point it out. Yeah. He's a little weasel. That's right, Dad. I feel like sometimes Jewish kids today have this experience in school where they are in some way like different from their peers, you know, but it comes up more around like, oh, what are you doing for Christmas? Like, oh, I don't do Christmas at my house. You know, it comes up more in cultural ways. But then in your dad's life, it was like very instantiated. They were like, hello, child, what is your ethnicity? (laughs) Yeah. You know, it was like both the awkward social experience in school as well as like a whole institutional set of other rings to go along with it. Yeah, it's totally crazy. Yeah. Okay, let's continue our journey. We lived in Belarus, right? One of the republics of the Soviet Union in Minsk. So majority of the population were Russians, Belarusians, and Ukrainians. Some others from other republics. And, of course, Jewish. And that was all designated as different nationalities. So you're a citizen of the Soviet Union, but your nationality was determined not by your place of birth. You would think that if you were born in Minsk, you're Belarusian. But that wasn't the case. What makes you remember that time when they were taking attendance? Oh, because it was very uncomfortable to identify yourself in front of other people because of the all kind of prejudices and casual mistreatment and systematic mistreatment, which I didn't know about at that time because I was too young. The fact that you may not get the job you want, you know, when I was 12 years old. But I felt antisemitism then because people would demonstrate in some ways to me that they didn't really like me or were suspicious about me and kids would mistreat me and sometimes adults. You felt embarrassed, yep. but were you proud? Uh, may, maybe a little later I was proud, but at that time in like elementary, middle school, that's, that's all embarrassment, uncomfortable thing. In high school, it would become even more difficult. You know, people just can beat you up for that. Really? Yeah. Did that ever happen to you? Yeah, it did. And then, of course, when I was a sophomore, senior, then you kind of develop your standing, right? Because you're one of the better, if not best students, because you're constantly being pushed in the family that you have to study. You have to be better than everybody else to be treated close to equal. In high school, closer to graduation, when my standing were pretty high among other students, I was treated better because I guess I was useful or could be useful to others for passing a test or maybe helping with some, solving some problems. It was uncomfortable and yet there was some sense of uh, maybe not power but you know influence did you ever tell anyone about that my parents what did they say well what my dad did he said well i cannot really help you go and talk to anybody because it's useless so you just have to get better than everybody else or try to get better than everybody else and you have to exercise he built me a pull-up bar and he said go ahead or implied message was just uh, you know get strong enough mentally and physically and be able to defend yourself Okay, that is also super wild. I don't want to speak for other groups of people, but I think it's a pretty common experience among marginalized groups to sort of be like, well, you just have to be the best. (laughs) You know, like if you're not the best and you're not useful to other people, then like 
tough shit. There's no way that you're gonna overcome anti-Semitism or transmisogyny or whatever it is. And it's like, whew, how do you live up to that, you know? Right, right. I mean, I guess he did. No, I'm not talking about him. This is about me. It's often said you have to do twice as well to get half as much. I don't necessarily think that's true for the majority of Jews in the U.S. today, but definitely it feels true for me as a trans woman, as a disabled person. I'm like, we can't just be like a good podcast. Like, we have to be the best, most groundbreaking podcast. In the world. In the world to just like get some attention, you know? You just want attention. Sorry, Charlie Puth's song reference I'll probably cut out. When he was saying that, it reminded me of stuff I I read about how you need to be twice as good if you're black to like get a tenure track job and stuff like that. Yeah, I've definitely heard it in that context as well. It's cool to see the success, but it also is like perfect propaganda for a sort of model minority model minority situation and also just like valorizing work at the expense right. of everything else. I think something it really brings up is something I have a hard time myself with, which is like people who are marginalized in particular ways don't get to live just like lives of chilling you know lives of relaxation it's like if you are marginalized in a certain way you're you really can only be valued if you are like an exceptional achiever you're not allowed to just relax and i really put that on myself a lot and i'm really trying to undo that value system that i've internalized yeah i mean i put that on myself too mostly inherited from my parents and grandparents it's a luxury to almost do anything that would feel good for yourself because your only purpose in this life is to achieve mm-hmm. yeah yeah i really relate to that okay let's continue by the way i'm gonna like edit this down and make it flow and all that stuff remove the parts that are not interesting just so you know everything is interesting right uh it definitely i would think that if you talk to american jews the people who were born here in Jewish families, let's say generation of your grandparents, maybe a little younger, but let's say 20 years or so older than me, you'd probably hear similar stories because anti-Semitism was pretty strong at that time. So officially, of course, there was nothing written anywhere. No laws against hiring Jews for certain jobs, but there were definitely government position and positions on Jews. It happened to many people and to myself when I was looking for my first job after college. I was told openly by a person who wanted to hire me that he talked to HR and they said, sorry, this guy is Jewish, we cannot hire. We already met our quota or something like that. That was the government thing. But the general population also was quite anti-Semitic. There were a lot of great people who couldn't care less about any of this. But there were plenty of people who were at a minimum suspicious about Jews. And some more religious people would even bring up something like, oh, you guys killed Jesus. Even for them, it was dangerous to say because, well, religion was frowned upon in general by the communist government. So it was crazy. It was a really crazy environment in that respect. So there were quotas. Absolutely. For colleges, for acceptance, like state university in Minsk, say for medical school, they would accept one Jewish person per year. Just to demonstrate that they do have all nationalities, you know, there. I really was tickled by the piece about how the Christians expressing their anti-Semitism was edgy for them in their own way because they aren't supposed to have any feelings about Jesus. Right. It's like nesting dolls of fuckery. It reminds me of in Russia, we have Christmas trees on New Year's because, well, you don't want Christmas. We're an atheist communist country, right? Right. But people are kind of into the tree and stuff. So let's just make it a New Year's tree. And we did this. We did this for the first few years in America. 
America on New Year's. This was a thing. And then I think my parents got wise and were like, this is fucking creepy. That's so interesting that they had their Christmas tree on New Year's. I think in a lot of Jewish families... You know, there's a lot of fucked up opinions about there about interfaith families. So I think interfaith families have an edgy time with Christmas sometimes Mm -hmm. if one of them is a Christmas person. I think Jews have a fraught relationship with Christmas for many reasons, but that is like a truly unique window into the Christmas tree vibe. It's a very strange mapping. Yeah. Yeah. It's, It's pretty wackadoo. Yeah. And the quotas. That's something that existed, I think, in the U.S. Yeah. Harvard had a Jewish quota. The ones I can find quick evidence of is um, Ivy League schools were the ones who were notable for their Jewish quotas, which is interesting because you went to an Ivy League school. (laughs) So that is true. That's a real twist. And now schools have their own fraught relationship with minority admissions. Let's continue. Bring it out. There's not an electoral reason to create anti-Semitism. Right. From their perspective, what do you think the reason is? Maybe it was nice to exploit some like natural anti-Semitism among population, prejudices, racial, whatever, religious prejudices, in case you need to put blame on somebody for something that isn't going well. You know that in the history of the Soviet Union, at some point, Stalin was going to shove all of the Jews into this special area close to the polar circle. They created this little autonomous, they called it Republic, Jewish Republic, which was like northeastern part of the country. Only because he died just in time, all of the Jews were not shipped there. So they were then considered kind of enemies of the people, sort of. There is no good rational explanation to any of this. Even during Stalin's era, there were quite a few prominent Jews in the government and KGB and everywhere. And yet they were persecuted quite a lot. I think the trick was to keep everybody on edge in case the country needs an enemy, internal enemy. Was there a police that you could call if something happened? You mean if like common crime occurred or something? Yeah, you would. Do you have an opinion about them? I guess they did their job most of the time, but you really don't know what the real situation is. It's like we used to say there are no train crashes no planes fallen from the sky in the Soviet Union. Nothing bad ever happened. So nothing was reported. So you didn't really know if there were any abuses by police or everything was fine because there was no information. All of the information you could get officially was everything's fine. We grow a lot of grain. We produce a lot of milk and eggs. And our life is getting better and better. And by the way, if you heard something about the uh, the train crash, that's not true. It's all propaganda from Voice of America. You either rely on your own experience or on information from people you trust, or at some point you start listening to short wave radio and maybe listen some or read some uh, summer's dot materials. You know, self-published underground stuff and a lot of kitchen conversations where you learn stuff. This is very reminiscent of our present situation. There is no pandemic. Everything's fine. Sort of like the Fox News. Yeah, it reminds me of the police brutality stuff. Everyone knows that there's awful shit going on if you're on Twitter, because that's when you see people posting videos of what's going on. Sure. Whereas the mainstream media on both sides is just kind of... Right. It's often not really talking so much about all the stuff that's happening. Also, I guess my dad read zines. I'm so glad to know your dad read underground zines and listened to underground radio stations in the Soviet Republic. What were some of the things that people talked about? Well, the 
first thing that people and the parents talked about is they warned us kids not to talk about any of the stuff, any political stuff to a stranger, even to friends, be very careful because the country was filled. I mean, any organization at any level, uh, your school classroom, your work office would always have informants. At that time when I grew up, every organization, every group of people, official group of people would have an informant. And they would listen and they would sometimes provoke conversation and then they would report to the authorities. Did you know who they were? In some cases you do. Sometimes you suspect somebody. Sometimes you have no idea. And that's why we were told as kids over and over again, just do not talk. Do not share your real thoughts with people you basically don't know. And what were the thoughts that you weren't allowed to share? Anything that is not in line with official propaganda, you better keep to yourself. Political jokes, uh, that was really scary thing to say in our own company. I had a friend who got kicked out of the university because he participated in some political discussion and somebody eavesdropped on it. He got kicked out. And the danger was when you get kicked out, your deferment for the military is automatically gone. So if you're 18 or older, then you have to go to the military. But that kid was able to somehow through his parents, I guess they helped him to go to a different college. And that's how I met him. So he was a little older. I think he spent a year or two in the university. He got kicked out for this political activity. And I didn't know the reason he got kicked out until we became really close friends, maybe a year or two later when he actually told me what happened. You can lose your job. Another thing they could do to you they could kick you out of your city. Say you live in Minsk, nice big city, and for certain, let's say, misbehavior types, they can send you to 101st kilometer, it was called. So you have to be at least 101 kilometers outside of the city. You are not allowed to live in a city anymore. And living in a big city was a privilege, actually, because the life there was much more normal than somewhere outside in a province where there probably would be no job for you, no good accommodation, so it would be really difficult. So there were all different ways of controlling people. But the main thing, you could be persecuted, prosecuted for just thinking something that you're not supposed to, or saying something. That would apply not just to Jewish people, but I would think that Jews would be the first ones to, to feel it, in addition to just being Jewish and being limited in your opportunities. If you work for a company and you're a good worker, no matter what your background is, they realize that if they lose you, I mean, it's, it's bad for the company. But the company is not just run by managers. Every organization had a, uh, let's say, a director of engineering and another person who was a, uh, I forget the title, but it was a political leader. So it was a representative of Communist Party who was in charge of overseeing the order. And that person, of course, mostly interested in maintaining that order. And if somebody is out of order or perceived to be out of order, then that person would get dealt with. Did you feel repressed? Did you feel miserable every day? No, I didn't feel miserable every day. Often enough, but not every day, not all the time. I mean, life is life. You have other things, you know. You don't always think about uh, how you didn't get that job or something like that or somebody 
call you some name. I, I would imagine, in a way, it's similar to minorities in this country, even now. Right? You you go to work, maybe you, you're highly educated black person, you have your nice job and you go there, but you're constantly aware of that things can go wrong. Did those experiences affect at all how you perceived authority, government, other minorities in America? I mean, you know, I was, what, 32 and a change, almost 33 years old when we came here. Of course, my experiences definitely affected how I viewed things here, although I was told that things here are very different. But then as you continue living here, you kind of learn that things are different, but some of the things are not that different. What have you learned from being a Jew in the Soviet Union? You cannot say that people are this or that. It's, it's all individuals. Because I've met a lot of bad individuals, a lot of good individuals, a lot of people who were put in a situation where they couldn't be themselves and they just had to go with the flow. And a lot of times, most of the people have to go with the flow, especially if authority pushing really hard on you. It can make your life miserable. But in the end, it's all individual people. What do you want our listeners to know? Closing remarks for everyone listening to the podcast. That is unfair question. I'm not unprepared. All right, well, that's my dad. He's very bristly. Thank you. Sure. Anytime. Almost anytime. Okay, almost anytime. All right. Wow, that's a great ending and a great interview. I'm glad you liked it, Hava. As I was listening to it, I was thinking about just how political his life was. It seemed like every area of his life, there were like political considerations that needed to be made. Then I just thought, well, like all of our lives are actually like political all of the time. But it seemed like in his life, there was an especially direct connection to like the party is going to feel some kind of way. <laughs> about you yeah yeah for me the, the information just kind of washes over me because it's like i've heard this before and <laughs> you know i have like become numb to it to a certain degree i hear how he's talking with me the tone it's a little bit combative at times and like making fun of me at times mm -hmm. something i wouldn't have ever noticed like five years ago yeah he's a bristly man mm -hmm. seems like it but he's definitely a man yeah a man's man. And what I like is that I'm eventually going to have like that, that scruffy voice. Right. So, right. Listeners. You should try to like recuperate your Russian accent. I know. I know. It's pretty good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, let's not deny it. I think all of our listeners hopefully will enjoy listening to that. The sultry sounds. Listeners, if you want to play the long game, I'm going to have a really nice voice. <laughs> In a couple decades, Michael's voice is going to really ripen. You got to, what is it? Strap that guy down. Mm, you got to lock that down yeah you gotta lock yeah. this down put a ring on it put a ring on this well listeners i hope you enjoyed that interview i thought it was really cool really beautiful and interesting window into a unique jewish experience and i hope we continue to have more fascinating interviews if you had any thoughts comments snide remarks give us a call on the talmud hotline or give us a text. You can reach us at 401-484-1619. Or tweet at us. You can find me at Hi, how are you, And you can find Michael at Miss underscore Figured. As we're wrapping up the show today, I want to give a special shout out to Azaria. I just want to thank you for the gift of your incredible scholarship. Oh, I know. I love cute. shout outs. Yeah, listeners, thank you so much for coming on this Belarusian adventure with mm, us. I hope you've learned something about something. Well, I don't know what the moral of the story is, but in some way, hearing these experiences was enriching for me. There you go. Well, listeners, I can't wait to see you again. Mm -hmm. And have a good week. Mm. Bye. Bye.